0: Happy Saturday, everyone. For the next two Saturdays, we are sharing our classic episodes on Robert Smalls, a man whose life included enslavement, the Civil War, reconstruction, and the rise of the racist caste system known as Jim Crow.
1: In part one, we talk about Robert Smalls' early life and his dramatic escape from enslavement in South Carolina.
0: This episode
1: originally came out on February 15th, 2016. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have a story that spans a lot of United States history. We're going to talk about Robert Smalls, who was enslaved in South Carolina and then escaped from enslavement during the United States Civil War in a particularly dramatic fashion. His escape is really only the beginning of the story, though. From there, he went on to serve in both houses of the South Carolina legislature, as well as in the United States House of Representatives. On top of having carried out this heroic escape and then gone on to serve in both the South Carolina and federal governments, you can look at Robert Smalls and his life as sort of a microcosm of the world that he lived in. Because of when and how he lived, his story is like an overview of slavery in the American South and the Civil War and Reconstruction, and the rise of Jim Crow. It's this enormous arc of American history that plays out through one person's life. So for that reason, we're going to look at this story in two parts. The first covering Robert Smalls' childhood, uh, his young adulthood, and his escape. And then part two, we'll get into his Civil War service, his post-war years in political life, and his legacy today.
1: Robert Smalls was born on April 5th, 1839, in Beaufort, South Carolina. His mother was named Lydia Polite, and she was enslaved in the household of the McKee family, where she worked as a nanny. She had been owned by the McKee family since birth and had worked in the McKee home since she was about 10 years old. Prior to that, she had been working as a field hand. And she was in her 40s when Robert was born. He had one older brother who was more than 20 years his senior.
0: I want to take a brief moment to say that if you are from virtually anywhere besides South Carolina and you know of a place spelled B-E-A-U-F-O-R-T, probably you say it Beaufort. Please do not write to us. You say (laughs) that we said it wrong. In South Carolina, for some reason, it is Beaufort, even though most of these places that most other people say Beaufort are named after the same person who pronounced it Beaufort. I have no explanation for why this pronunciation (laughs) in South Carolina is different. Uh, Also unknown, actually, is the identity of Robert's father, Historians and biographers have suggested several different candidates, but there's no real evidence to support any of them. The most commonly suggested potential father is Henry McKee, the patriarch of the McKee family at the time. Much of this speculation is because Lydia and Henry lived on the same property for many years, including the years that surrounded Robert's birth. But Lydia actually helped raise Henry, and none of the other women that Henry owned are supposed to have had a child by him. So even though he's sort of the most popular theorized father, we don't actually know. And regardless, Henry McKee and the
1: rest of the McKee household treated Lydia and her son with a degree of leniency and benevolence, including Lydia being able to keep and raise him herself. Robert grew up playing with Henry McKee's own children. Since he and his mother worked in the house rather than in the fields, their positions also came with certain privileges. Mother and son were allowed to attend church and to visit Lydia's family, who were enslaved on the nearby Ashdale Plantation, a Sea Island cotton plantation. And that was where Lydia herself had worked before being moved to the house.
0: However, even though by all accounts, uh, Robert and his mother were treated with some kindness and flexibility, Robert and his mother were still enslaved. They had no prospects for becoming free. By this point, slavery in the United States had evolved into an institution that was both hereditary and tied to race. Unless enslaved people were set free by their owners, managed to purchase themselves, or managed to escape, they were held in bondage for life. And any children who were born to any enslaved person were enslaved as well. Henry McKee had inherited Lydia from his father, and then Robert had been enslaved from birth. So we're not talking about how they were treated relatively kindly as a way to excuse the fact that, that enslavement was going on. Like, that's a thing that people bring up on the internet a lot. Like, not all slave owners were awful. That doesn't excuse the fact that they were enslaved for life with no potential to be free.
1: Because the institution of slavery in the United States had become tied to race, a collection of laws and social attitudes developed that were also based on race, and they affected virtually all Black people, whether or not they were or ever had been enslaved. For example, uh, a number of fugitive slave laws allowed for the capture and return of escaped slaves to their owners. And since slavery was tied to race... All Black people in the United States were at a risk of being targeted by these laws, regardless of whether they had ever been enslaved. Overwhelmingly, free people of African descent were also explicitly denied a number of legal rights and protections, including the right
0: to vote. So because his owners treated him comparatively gently in his childhood and because his mother's work in the house meant that they were both afforded more privileges than many other slaves, The young Robert Smalls was not really conscious of of a lot of these realities. His mother, on the other hand, absolutely was. She was afraid that Robert would grow into manhood when white society would view him as being inherently threatening without understanding the realities of enslavement and the risks that were inherent in having black skin, especially in a slave state. She knew that if he was sold to another family, one that might not be as flexible or treat him as kindly, Without understanding these realities, his well-being and even his life could be in danger. So, as part of his education,
1: she would take him to Ashdale Plantation, where her family was still enslaved, to see and experience what the lives of field hands were like. The McKee family had long allowed Lydia to visit her family at the plantation, and, probably unaware of her motive here, they allowed her to take Robert with her when she visited.
0: She would also take him to the auction site to see children, sometimes much younger than himself, being bought and sold. She'd also take him to the whipping post in Beaufort, where enslaved people were publicly whipped as a punishment, to witness what happened to them there. In one case, an enslaved woman who was being publicly whipped turned out, unbeknownst to him, to be his friend Susan.
1: While this did certainly educate Smalls about the reality of slavery, it also understandably made him really angry. A number of writers and historians describe his middle childhood as, quote, defiant. The curfew for slaves was at sundown, and a bell would ring every night to signal that it was time for the enslaved people to all be at home. Smalls resented this curfew, especially when he was out playing with white children who didn't have to go home. So he started breaking curfew, along with many of the other rules that governed the minutiae of the slave's lives. By the time his age reached double digits, he was winding up in Beaufort jail fairly often, with his owner having to bail him out.
0: Small's mother, once again, feared for his safety. So in 1851, she asked that he be sent away from Beaufort and instead rented out in Charleston renting out an enslaved person's labor was a pretty common practice since it allowed owners to continue to profit from their slaves' labor, even if they personally didn't have any work for them to do right then. So McKee agreed.
1: And going to Charleston was a huge change in Small's life and a huge opportunity. And we're going to talk about the how and why of that after we pause for a brief word from a sponsor.
0: Charleston gave Robert Smalls a lot more freedom of movement than he'd had in Beaufort, as well as a lot more opportunity to learn and to work. The Black population of Charleston, which included both free and enslaved people, often outnumbered its white population, and its economy supported a lot of different types of work. There were schools for free Black children, which Smalls couldn't personally attend, but he could learn from people who went there. He was also able to attend church and to participate in community organizations. He also joined several secret charities that were meant to help Charleston's enslaved population work toward freedom.
1: His first jobs were suited to his youth. He lit lamps, he waited in bus tables at a restaurant, and he did odd jobs along the waterfront. He also made a little extra money by buying cheap tobacco and candy and reselling them for a higher price.
0: Eventually, he went to work with a man named John Simmons, where he started getting extremely valuable experience in all sorts of jobs and trades related to the water. He learned to be a stevedore, a sailmaker, a rigger, and a sailor. He became an expert at navigating the complex waterways around the South Carolina and Georgia coasts. Eventually, he was making $16 a month, a dollar of which he was allowed to keep when he turned the rest of his pay back over to Henry McKee.
1: When Smalls was 16, he met Hannah Jones, who was age 30, who worked as a hotel maid in Charleston. She was being hired out to the hotel by her owners, the Kingman family. She had two daughters, Clara and Charlotte, whose father is unknown, and they all lived together behind the Kingman family home.
0: Soon, Robert and Hannah were spending most of their free hours together, which was mostly Saturday nights and then on Sundays when they went to church.
1: Within a couple of years, Robert and Hannah wanted to get married, and they also wanted to live together as white couples and free Black couples were allowed to do. Enslaved people, on the other hand, were generally required to live in quarters provided by their owners, which were usually separate, regardless of their marital status. So before getting married, they first got permission from the Kingmans and the McKees to live together as a couple.
0: That was actually the easy part, and both sets of owners agreed. But the harder part is that Robert and Hannah didn't just want to live together in slave quarters behind somebody's house. They wanted to live together in their own home. So they each also had to get their owners to agree to allow them to do extra work beyond what they were hired out to do, and then keep some of the profits so that they could afford the rent and living expenses that would come with their own place. Eventually, both owners agreed. The
1: couple was married at the McKee home on December 24th, 1856, with Henry McKee pronouncing them married. When they returned to Charleston, they lived over some stables, and Robert arranged to pay the rent in exchange for keeping the stables clean, meaning they got to keep the money they had negotiated with the McKees and the Kingmans as needed for their rent.
0: Even though living above the stables gave them a greater amount of independence and autonomy than most enslaved couples, Their marriage did not offer them any personal or legal protections. Marriages between enslaved people basically had no legal standing. Uh, Smalls knew that if they chose, the Kingmans could sell Hannah somewhere else, or they could hire her labor away from Charleston. The possibility of her being sold or otherwise moved away from him became increasingly threatening as they had children together over the next few years.
1: So Robert first asked his owner if he might have permission to buy his wife and children. And once that was secured, in spite of the fact that it was illegal for slaves to own other slaves, he asked the Kingmans if he could buy Hannah and their children. And Mr. Kingman said yes, for $800. Smalls only had $100, which Kingman agreed to accept as a down payment. From that point on, Smalls and his wife put all their resources into saving up the additional $700.
0: They never actually had to pay it, though. On April 22, 1862, 15 enslaved persons commandeered a barge that belonged to the Confederate Quartermaster Department, and they managed to sail that barge to a Union ship. It's possible but uncertain that Smalls had heard about this, and it inspired him to take his own action. It's also possible that he had heard about Major General David Hunter of the Union Army, who, in addition to making several attempts to just free all enslaved persons in the territory that he commanded also ordered that any Black person who could reach the Union line be considered free and accepted into military service. Regardless, Smalls soon made a similar escape himself.
1: Robert Small's escape from slavery took place during the United States Civil War. This war had been brewing for decades before it actually began as tide turned against slavery in the northern states. The northern states began abolishing slavery, passing laws to prevent the return of escaped slaves to the states where they had been held in bondage, and otherwise trying to pressure the remaining slave states into abolishing the practice as well.
0: The slave state's dissatisfaction with all this increased dramatically in 1850, when California, a free state, was admitted into the Union without a corresponding slave state to preserve the balance of power in Congress this slave state free state pairing is something that we talked about recently in our episode on the honey war. Every state admitted after 1850 was also free, and each new free state meant that the slave states had less and less power and faced greater and greater risk of Congress taking action to abolish slavery entirely.
1: Slaveholding states had been threatening to secede from the Union for decades. A number of compromises, including the Missouri Compromise we also discussed when we talked about the Honey War, had kept the Union together temporarily. But as the 1860 presidential election approached, the prevailing wisdom was that the election of a Republican president would guarantee that slaveholding states would begin to break away from the United States.
0: That Republican president was Abraham Lincoln, elected on November 6, 1860. On December 20th of that year, South Carolina became the first state to secede.
1: In its Declaration of Causes of Secession, South Carolina outlined its reasons for leaving the Union. After citing the Declaration of Independence and stressing repeatedly that the Revolutionary War led to each former colony becoming a, quote, free, sovereign, and independent state, the Declaration of Causes went on to read, quote, an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to a disregard of their obligations and the laws of the general government have ceased to affect the objects of the Constitution. South Carolina's Declaration of Causes then raises objections to several other states passing laws that fugitive slaves would not be returned from there to their slaveholding states of origin.
0: By the time Lincoln was inaugurated on February 1st, 1861, six more states had seceded. Three of them issued their own declarations of causes, all of which make extensive references to the issue of slavery, the refusal of non-slaveholding states to return escaped slaves to their former owners, and efforts to curtail or abolish slavery. The first shots
1: of the United States Civil War were fired on April 12, 1861, at Fort Sumter, a then-federal fort in Charleston Harbor, where Confederate General P.G.T. Beauregard opened fire on the fort. The fort's commander, Major Robert Anderson, surrendered after two days. With the nation now actively at war, more states seceded from the Union and joined the Confederacy.
0: Later that year, the Confederacy leased a wooden steamer named The Planter from its owner, John Ferguson, who had been using it to carry cotton along the Dee River in South Carolina. The Confederate Navy also conscripted its enslaved crew. One of them was its wheelman, Robert Smalls.
1: Once under the control of the Confederate military, the planter shifted from hauling cotton to carrying supplies between various fortifications around Charleston, as well as laying mines, then referred to as torpedoes, in the waterways. Often, these supplies consisted of munitions and ordnance. The planter itself was also armed with a cannon and a howitzer, On May 13th of 1862, in addition to its own armaments, the planter was carrying four guns and a gun carriage. The guns were bound for Charleston's middle ground battery at Fort Ripley and the carriage for Fort Sumter.
0: While working aboard the planter, Smalls, then 23, had proven himself to be extremely reliable and trustworthy. So much so that on the night of the 13th, the three white officers who were were assigned to the planter, Captain C.J. Raelia, Pilot Samuel H. Smith and Engineer Zarek Pitcher left it with no white officer aboard. They went into Charleston for the night, probably to socialize or to visit family. This was actually grounds for court-martial. For a couple of weeks, Smalls had been putting together a
1: plan that would allow him to take advantage of just such an opportunity. This was not the first time that the officers had gone ashore overnight. So at about 3 a.m., he donned the captain's jacket and his big straw hat, adopted his usual posture, said a prayer, and moved the planter out of the wharf, which lay directly across from the headquarters of Confederate Brigadier General Roswell Ripley.
0: From there, they proceeded to the North Atlantic Wharf, where his wife and children, along with several other enslaved people, were concealed aboard another boat called the Etowah. Once everyone hidden in the Etowah was aboard the planter, their number totaled nine men, five women, and three children.
1: Their goal was to reach the Union blockade. Ten ships arranged off the coast to prevent the Confederacy from using the Atlantic Ocean for things like trade or troop movements. To do so, they had to run up the South Carolina flag and Confederate colors, then successfully make their way past five different Confederate sentry stations. This required sounding the correct signals and responding correctly to signals from the outposts. Plus, nobody could notice that there were no white people on this boat.
0: You'll see a lot of, like, memes floating around the internet about Robert Smalls and how awesome he was. And a lot of them claim that he read a code book in order to do this. But at this point, he was not actually literate. So it's more likely that he had observed what the officers were doing and memorized what they were doing and then recalled all of that flawlessly during this escape. (laughs) the last outpost that they had to get past was Fort Sumter itself. In theory, they could have given the fort a wide berth and maybe avoided this one last exchange of coded signals, but Smalls really wanted it to look like they were just the normal ship doing something completely routine, albeit at an extremely early hour, for as long as possible.
1: Exchanging that last set of signals with Fort Sumter was not the most dangerous part of this escape, though. Once they received the okay to continue, they had to get out of range of the fort's guns before striking their Confederate colors. If they struck the colors too soon, they would be shot and sunk by the Confederacy. But if they waited too late, the ships in the blockade would probably think they were on a ramming course, so they would be shot and sunk by the Union
0: instead. They had actually made no plans for what to do if they wound up being captured. If it came down to it, they were ready to fight back against the Confederacy with the armaments that were aboard the ship and to blow up the ship's boiler if necessary, even though that would mean the deaths of everyone on board. Basically, the only things that they considered to be acceptable outcomes in this escape were escaping or death, being enslaved again, not on the list.
1: At sunrise, as they approached the Union ship onward, Robert Smalls and his men took down their Confederate flag and they ran up a white sheet. It was possibly stolen from the hotel where his wife worked. And the Union gladly accepted their surrender and took possession of the planter.
0: This meant that Robert Smalls, his family, and their friends who had escaped with them were now free. And we're going to talk about what happened after that. Because like we said, this is really the beginning of a much longer story. And we're going to talk about that in our next episode. Yeah, he basically just stole a Confederate ship out from under the nose of the Confederacy and handed it over to the Union. It was like, Hi guys, I brought you this boat. Well, and we might get emails about the word ship versus boat, but just we know. Don't don't bother. <laughs> well, and I just
1: I I love this story because it just the whole thing took such ingenuity and like craftiness at every turn that you, you just yeah. cannot help but be wowed by
0: it. It also shows how difficult and dangerous and rare it actually was for enslaved people to escape. I mean, at this point, this was during the Civil War, there were perhaps more opportunities for people to escape just because there was so much more chaos going on and there were Union troops who were actively interested in helping people to escape to freedom. Uh, but one of the things that... that people sort of misbelieve about uh, enslavement and about the civil war is that there was just an enormous, enormous influx of, uh, of, of enslaved people who were successfully escaping all the time. And one of the reasons for that is that most of the first person knowledge that we have about enslavement and uh, especially like in the United States, the institution of slavery is from people who did successfully escape and then went on to write a slave narrative and this is like a tiny it's not a it's not an accurate sample right of, of all enslaved people it's like the the slave narratives that we have came from the people who were able to escape and then were able either uh, able to learn to read and write or were able to find someone to help them write um uh, write down their story and it's not an actually representative sample of all of the enslaved people uh, in the United States. So, uh, still an awesome story. <laughs> um, and it's, it's very intriguing to me how, uh, because he was from South Carolina and because of when he was born and where he lived and what he did, so much of his life parallels the arc of United States history that ran through these decades.